there is a lot of trembling in that passage that uh, sticks out at us, doesn't there? Uh, let me read these words as we come to God in prayer. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favour. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Father God, we pray for help this morning as we come before your word. Might you help us be those who are humble and contrite in heart. Might we be those who tremble before you, not as those who are afraid, not as those who run away from you, but as those who would behold your greatness, your majesty, your glory, and would be humbled to our knees in adoration and worship. Father God, we thank you that you are a God who desires relationship, that you make relationship possible. Might you thrill our hearts this morning with how you do that, we pray. Amen. Well, we are rejoining a series we started going through the book of Exodus, and we have reached the second half, if you like, of the book. And the first half has looked at how God has rescued a people from Egypt, from the slavery that they were in, to Pharaoh. And we thought about how the book is basically explaining to us how God rescues two relationship. If you like, we've seen what rescue looks like. And this next part of the book is all about what relationship will look like. Uh, we're going to see the giving of the, the covenant law. We're going to see the provision of a tabernacle. Uh, both those two things are bound up in what it means for this people to have a relationship with a living God. Uh, and it really is my prayer this morning that as we, we look at this passage, actually it will be a wonderful lead-in to our celebrating the Lord's Supper that we've talked about already this morning. Because as we come to God, we come to God this morning through Jesus. And yet what we see God doing with this people, if you like, it lays out a blueprint. It shows us what God's heart and intention is. If we get what God was trying to do through this covenant, we will see how gloriously he has provided for us in Jesus. Uh, so there are uh, four things I want us to look at. Two things that we see about God and then uh, two gifts we are given now, firstly, what do we see about God? We see that God is a God who makes covenants. God invites his people to covenants. Uh, verse 1 in chapter 19, we're reminded that God has brought the people uh, to the mountain that he said to Moses he would bring them, Mount Sinai. They, they stand at the foot of this mountain. This was a mountain God revealed himself to Moses in a place called Horeb. Now, three months to the day after God's rescue, they are standing there before him. At the people at the bottom of the mountain, Moses is called some way up the mountain, and God speaks to him. And he tells us in verse 4 and 5 some very important words. Uh, these words are crucial to understanding the rest of the Old Testament uh, because they describe the covenants now, what is a covenant? Some of us might be familiar with that word. It appears a lot in the Bible. A covenant is all about a relationship that is established between two parties. Uh, one writer puts it this way. A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make 
binding promises. Uh, in the ancient Near East, um, kind of at the time of God's people here, there, there would have been quite a common thing to do between nations, between kings. A, a small king might seek a covenant with a big king. If you like, the, the small king goes to the big king because they want the big king's protection and provision. If, if someone fights them, they want the big king to step in and intercede. Uh, in return for that protection, the big king might require some things from the small king. For the small king to honor the big king, for him to, to pay tribute to him. You see, at the heart of a covenant, it's not just a legal agreement, though there is this legal nature of promises on both sides. It's about enabling a relationship between these two parties. What is the, the shape and substance of that relationship going to look like? Now, for us, in many ways, marriage is kind of a wonderful example of a covenant where two people come together and they make promises to one another to be faithful to one another unto death. There is a covenant being created. Now, as we read the Bible and we see the word covenant, it becomes a particularly important word for us because it is in covenant that God has a relationship with us. There is no relationship with God without a covenant. And now, there are lots of covenants in the Bible. And in many ways, a really helpful question as we're reading through is to always ask, what covenant is this people under? Uh, what covenant are we under? Uh, we're going to come back to this later. But as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating a new covenant. Uh, God has created a new shape of relationship between us and him. And yet, in many ways, these this covenant that he makes with his people, as I've said already, it lays out a bit of a blueprint to what God wants, what God's heart desires in how he and his people would relate, and therefore what the new covenant brings about for us. Well, let's look uh, carefully at this covenant. Uh, and firstly, do you see how God reminds the people what he's done? Verse 4, he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You saw what I did to your slave masters. You saw how I utterly destroyed them, how I bulldozed their gods, how I put you on my back, how you glided through the deserts in order that you'd be here, near me. It is God reminding his people of his incredible love towards them. He has required nothing of them, and yet he has rescued them. What does God promise? Now look, middle of verse 5. Out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. You will be precious to me. Uh, kings would have had their sort of treasured possession, their, their special treasure. The, the ones that they, they guarded more tightly, the ones that they showed off to those uh, who'd come and visit. God says, look, the whole world, the whole earth is mine, but you as a people will be precious to me. I think I've shared before that our, each of our kids have been given a, a comforter when they were small. Uh, we unimaginatively have named them Lion, Piglet, and Foxy. Uh, makes things easier as a parent when you don't have complicated names. Uh, but Anna, our, our youngest, a three-year-old, she has Foxy. That is her special possession. She, she has lots of toys, but Foxy is the one that if she could, she would take absolutely everywhere with her. It's a pain to try and prize it out of her hands to get it through the washing machine. 
She, she holds it close to her heart. She sleeps with it. She takes it around with her. She treasures it. Um, she also loses it. And when she loses it, the whole house has to stop and search and rescue Foxy. There will be no peace until that moment happens. Now, wonderfully, God doesn't lose people. But do you see how amazing this promise is to Israel? That this covenant, they will be treasured and delighted in as God's special possession. Uh, he also describes two things of what that will mean. What will they be? Firstly, verse 6, they will be a kingdom of priests. Uh, what was a priest? They were someone who had special access to their God. They were able to serve their God with joy. This whole people group will be kind of set free to serve God with joy and have special access to him. They will also be a holy nation. They will be set apart. They will be different from the world around them. They will start to reflect God's holiness. People will come, on, come along and see Israel and they'll say, wow, not aren't you amazing, Israel? They'll say, wow, haven't you got an amazing God? Uh, these are amazing promises that God makes to them. So what does he ask? What's their side of the bargain? Well, it comes in verse 5, doesn't it? If, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant. All God asks is that this people would be loyal to him. That this people would submit entirely to him. Now, at this point, I know some of us are thinking, well, we, we know that that's impossible. Obey God fully. And yet, remember, God knows that they're going to sin. He's going to give them commands for what they do when they sin. He's going to give them sacrifices that they need to make to put their sin right. Now, do, do you see how generous this covenant is? In fact, this invitation to covenant, God doesn't actually say, look, I've rescued you. Here's the deal. He says, I've rescued you. I've poured my love out towards you. This is the shape of the relationship that I want with you. What do you say? Uh, I'm reminded of a, um, a program that I've watched uh, on and off over the years, uh, Dragon's Den. I don't know if anyone enjoys Dragon's Den. It's, it's about sort of investors coming and pitching for money. Uh, and usually they walk in and they, they completely overvalue their company. And they say, well, I want £100,000 and I'll give you 10% of my company. And for the investor, uh, what they want to do is they want to invest in a company that makes more money so that whatever their 10 or 20 or 30% of that company is, it gets bigger over time. Uh, there's always this kind of back and forwardness between the investor and the person pitching the idea as to how valuable they are and their idea is. The investor wants a higher percentage because they think their money, their investment is worth more. Well, here... You've got Israel and God, and Israel is utterly penniless. Actually, Israel has nothing to offer God at all. They were entirely slaves. And yet God, if you like, the investor with everything to lose, nothing to gain, says, look, I'm going to give you 100%. All I ask for is 100%. You see, what does this teach us about our God? It teaches us the sort of relationship that he intends for us to have with him. 
a God who gives us absolutely everything, a God who rescues us in entirety, a God who makes promises of blessing that he himself keeps, all he asks of us is that we would listen fully, that we would submit ourselves completely. Uh, That's our first point. But secondly, look at God's radioactive holiness. Uh, The people uh, obviously think this covenant is a good idea because uh, we're told when Moses relays this to them, uh, verse 8, they respond together, we will do everything the Lord has said. It's like they bite God's hand off. Yes, absolutely. If that's what you're offering, yes, we'll do it. Uh, It's like the proposal that God has made to his people has wonderfully been accepted, and now it's time for the ceremony. Now it's time for God himself to come down on this mountain. Uh, But if God is going to come down, if God is going to turn up in a special way, that requires the people to get ready. Verse 10, the people need to go and consecrate themselves. Uh, They need to set themselves apart Um, When I think of consecration, uh, I uh, often think of a toothbrush. I think I've shared this before, but a toothbrush, I think we've got a picture up on screen. Uh, This is something we consecrate. We set it apart. Uh, Unless you're maybe slightly weird, uh, you don't use your toothbrush for anything else. You guard it. Just use it for brushing your teeth. To use it for something else is just horrible. No, God's people needed to be set apart for God alone. And so they need to wash their clothes. They need to get ready. They need to abstain from sexual relations. Uh, There's a lot more that could be said about some of the Old Testament laws about what made people holy and unholy. But one thing I think is helpful to see is that when God turns up in physical time and space, holiness sort of takes on this physical dimension to it. And I think this is God's way of showing the people the utter cleansing and setting apart that their lives needed to have in order to have this relationship with God. Well, they need to be consecrated, but they also need to be protected. Did you see that? Verse 12, they need to put limits for the people around the mountain. You need to stay away. This place where God is going to uh, come down, it's going to become holy. Actually, so serious is this offense that if someone walks across the line, if someone, as it were, sort of contaminates this space, they are to be put to death. And they're to be put to death in a way that means that the one who is sort of carrying out this instruction doesn't themselves contaminate the mountain. They're to to throw rocks or shoot arrows. Well, the third day, verse 16, what happens? There is thunder and lightning. There is a thick cloud over the mountain. There is a loud trumpet, the sort of trumpet that you hear sounded when a king arrives And everyone in the camp trembled. They're at the foot of this mountain. And Moses starts to lead the people out of the camp to meet with this holy God. And yet when they look up, what do they see? Smoke billowing off this mountain. A raging fire like a furnace. The whole mountain trembling violently. And yet... As the sound of the trumpet gets louder and louder, Moses speaks and God answers. See, everything in us, seeing this almighty God kind of coming crashing down onto his creation, 
would, would make us think this is a God who's about to squash his people. And yet, no, he's, he's come to speak with his people. He answers Moses. Uh, and then we have what seems like a bit of an odd scene here, verse 20 to 25. Uh, God calls Moses up the mountain only to send him immediately back down the mountain. I don't know how tall this mountain was, uh, but what does he say? He, he, he calls him up and then verse 21 says, go down and warn the people so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Uh, Moses, verse 23, seems a bit confused. Um, God, you, you've told me to do this already. You've got, told me to put limits up. We've put those limits in place. Why are you telling me to go and warn them? Well, God doesn't really sort of answer that question. Verse 24, he simply tells him to go down. And he warns again. Even the priests must not come up on the mountain. Otherwise, the Lord will break out against them. See, what does this show us about God? I think it shows us that his holiness is radioactive. Uh, just think of a, a radioactive kind of, I don't know, nuclear power station or nuclear reactor. Uh, I don't know if we've ever seen one in the flesh, I'm sure, but you could imagine. That there is a kind of mixture of beauty and power. There's something probably to, to behold about what's going on, the energy that's being created and harnessed. There's a beauty there to God's holiness. In fact, God, God kind of predicts that people are going to see his holiness and they're going to be drawn towards him. They're going to want to come close. And yet, just like you don't walk towards a nuclear reactor, imagining that the laws of physics don't apply to you, you cannot approach this radioactive holiness unprepared. See, I think it's very easy for all of us to take God lightly. In fact, taking God lightly is the root, I think, of all sin. Even Moses, even Moses, who's, who's been with God, who's seen his power, his almightiness, even he would have the audacity to question this God. Is this God having a senior moment, forgetting what God has, he'd already told Moses? Of course not. No, what Moses doesn't see is what God means to communicate to us. No, God in his kindness is warning the people. Take my holiness seriously. Because if you don't, it's death. God doesn't want the people to find out for themselves by trial and error. He graciously warns them. If God is approached and we are unclean, God will break out against us. His purity and his perfection will incinerate all that is sinful, all that is dirty and unclean. Now you see, I wonder whether this morning, if we're honest, how many of us are surprised that God would say that to, to approach his mountain, to step foot on it, would warrant death. How many of us, if we were here, at this moment in time, and we saw someone walk onto this mountain, would be willing to pick up a rock or to shoot an arrow because we realize how wrong their approach of God, a holy God like this is. See, if that's the case, I wonder whether we've tamed him. We've reduced him. We've opted for the fun-sized version of God. 
No, God is teaching us that if, if we want to approach him, we need to be consecrated. Even the priests, even with the sort of special role and honor they have, they need to be consecrated in a way that goes beyond this three-day kind of ritual process of getting ready for God. They need something else. Now, I wonder for us whether this helps us in thinking about that word holiness. Does it change how we think of the word holiness? It would be easy for holiness to become something of a bad word for us. We think of that as being sort of boring and stifling. You know, those holy people over there who don't have a lot of fun. We can think of holiness as being a word that is an impossible word. No one can be holy. No, God is saying here that without holiness, there is no relationship. Uh, Holiness at its heart is about relationship. That's what God wants us to see. And that leads us on to our next point, which is a gift from God, and that is the gift of the law. Uh, we uh, read in, verse, in, in chapter 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments. This is probably the most famous part of God's law. Uh, you could think of these commands as being something of a, a summary of the law. Uh, they're going to be worked out in different case laws over the next chapters. And you see, understanding this gift of law against God's holiness helps us see what is going on here. God is giving this law, these commandments, this covenant, in order to help them uh, obtain the, the sort of holiness that they need to remain in this relationship with who God is. Uh, these words are Israel's life. Uh, I remember um, watching a documentary uh, speaking about a rescue of some Thai, um, a Thai football team in some underground caves by some divers. And um, lots of things struck me about that rescue. But one thing that has really stayed with me is the description of one diver talking about his, his dive out of the caves with one of the, the boys that was rescued. See, what I didn't realize was that if you're a diver going under those sorts of tunnels, you, you can't see anything. You can barely see in front of your eyes. You, you have a bit of a, a torch, but the water's so muddy. You're, you're feeling around. And so what do you do when you, you go down uh, d- deeper and deeper into these holes? You, you take with you a dive line. It's like a cable that, that you're sort of attached to. And the point is that no matter where you are, if you hold on to the dive line, you can find the way out. You can get back to the surface. And this guy in the documentary was talking about the moment where he let go of the dive line. Can you imagine how terrifying that must be? He thought that was it. You just have to wait until the oxygen tank ran out. That's like certain death. Uh, amazingly, uh, someone else was coming through the tunnel and managed to help him back to the dive line. But can you imagine how much he would hold tightly to that line after that experience? No, this is precious. This is the way out. This is, this is life. Keep hold of that dive line. You see, the gift of God's law was meant to be a dive line for God's people, for them to treasure it and hold tightly to it. Uh, This was the path to life. This is the path to relationship with him. Um, We're told, verse 2, in the beginning of these Ten Commandments, a wonderful reminder, again, that God is the one who rescues his people. Uh, These commands aren't about enabling rescue. No, God has done that for them. These commands are about living as his people, reflecting him to the world around Uh, Each of these commands is framed negatively. These are are red lines that the people are not to cross. 
And yet I want us to see how positively these commands call us to be, if you like. Uh, let's briefly look through uh, each of these. I realize we're not going to have time to go into detail. And I should say that we did go through the Ten Commandments a while ago at Grace. So you can check those out on our website if you'd like to. But firstly, what does God say? He says, you have no other gods. You're to be loyal to me. I mean, why on earth would the people want another god? He says, don't make images of me. Don't, don't reduce me in who I am. Don't try to sort of control me and make me tamer. No, love me for who I am, how I've revealed myself. I don't discredit my name. Honor it. Show that you value who I am. Accept the gift of weekly pattern of rest and dependence on me as your creator and provider and rescuer. Honor the parents that I've given you with the job of teaching you who I am. Don't take life, defend it, protect it. Honor and guard marriages. Uh, treat other people's possessions well, keep them safe. Be a, a reliable voice, speak truthfully about others. And rejoice in the blessings that God has given your neighbor. You see, in short... This is summarized for us in the New Testament as describing what it means to love God and love our neighbor as ourself. And notice the key word there is love. This law is supposed to be a guideline, a dive line to help us love. As the people beheld who God was, as they beheld his rescue and his power and his might, it was to change them. It was to call them to, to treat others as they've been treated. Now, this would describe the place, the society, I think, that we would love to live. And yet it requires love. See, I think it's interesting, actually, that of all of these commands, the one that Paul picks up in the New Testament as convicting him the most is that final command, what it is to covet. See, actually, all of these commands required a kind of heart attitude to them. But the last one, I think, explicit makes that explicit, doesn't it? Uh, our neighbor could, could receive a fancy car, have uh, a beautiful husband or wife, have a lovely home. We, we, could, we could bring ourselves not to steal that. We could force ourselves not to steal their possessions, not to commit adultery. And yet in our hearts, we could cover, couldn't we? In our hearts, we can't really say that we are genuinely happy that God has given them that and not us. No, this gift of the law requires a heart. Well, what do the people do, verse 18? When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance. And they said to Moses, speak to us yourself, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, or we will die. Uh, the people have seen God's gracious invitation to covenant. They've seen his radioactive holiness. They've seen this precious gift of the law. They've seen his power. Uh, they've realized that this is not a God you push around. This is a God you bow before. Maybe for the first time, they've suddenly realized how massive and amazing their God is. And yet in their reaction, they show that they don't really know who he is. Their conclusion is that this is a God who's better we keep 
distance from. This is God. We'd rather speak to someone a bit more our size. They forget his passionate love. They forget his mighty rescue. They forget his wonderful words. And perhaps that's what some of us this morning might feel towards God. When we start to see how truly big and awesome, how holy and how perfect, when we start to feel our inadequacy, our sinful hearts that are far too loveless towards him and those around, where even his words that he would graciously give us feel more oppressive than they do life-giving. When we recognize that loyalty to this God means he has something to say about every single part of our lives. I wonder if that scares us. I wonder if that would make us like God's people want to say, keep your distance. Let someone else speak to us. Well, look at what Moses says in verse 20. Moses says to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Don't be afraid. Fear God. And yet we've seen this already in the book of Exodus. God has come to test them. He's come to train them. You see, fear of God is not about running away from God. No, that is being afraid of God. That's what the people want to do. They see God's power and his might. They want to run away. No, a true fear of God recognizes that power and yet is drawn towards him. Uh, Apparently, the sun is 330,000 times bigger than the earth. It can fit an awful lot of earths inside the sun. It is the size and the magnitude of the sun that holds the earth in place in its gravitational pull. It pulls us towards the sun. No, fearing God, seeing how big and how good God is, is meant to draw us to him. It's meant to trust in him, to delight in him. The psalmist can say, blessed are those who fear the Lord and who find great delight in in his commands. No, as, as, we, take, as we adopt, a, I suppose, a posture of bowing before this God and taking this God seriously, we are never meant to be terrified. Actually, we're meant to be overwhelmed by this great, powerful, and loving God who would call us into a relationship with himself. See, verse 21, the people remained at a distance And yet Moses doesn't. Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. See, the people have been given a law, but what they need is a mediator. They need someone who will go on their behalf and approach this holy God, who will do what they are unwilling to do. And that is what Moses does. In fact, God knew that he would need Moses to do this. That's why we're told uh, in chapter 19 that God would speak to Moses before the people so that the people would put their trust in him. But you see, the thing is, is that Moses will fail. Even Moses will dishonor God. Israel will fail. 
Israel will be unfaithful. Uh, This old covenant ultimately dies because this old, old covenant could only bring about death. But here's the amazing thing for us this morning. Jesus has come. Uh, God has, in an incredible act of humility and generosity, become someone more our size to speak with us. If you like, he's seen us in our sin, terrified of who he is, and he has sent a better Moses. And that in Jesus, he has been a better Israel. He has been perfectly obedient to the Father. You see, the new covenant that Jesus comes to bring us this morning is one that rests not on our obedience to God, but one that rests on his. One that is written in his blood. You see, as we see and we celebrate Jesus crucified on a cross for his people, we see what it looks like for the Lord to break out against our sin. He stands there as one put to death for touching God's mountain as one who bears our sin instead of us. And yet gloriously, it is in his death and in his resurrection that all of our sin is expunged, that it is incinerated, that we are washed clean. In fact, that our hearts are given life. You see, he's a mediator who doesn't just go to God on our behalf. If you like, he takes us by the hand and draws us up God's holy mountain without fear. What does he call us to? He calls us to trust, to repentance and to faith, to recognize that we can do nothing to change our hearts that it takes God himself to come and die for our hearts to give us life, to die for us, to give the sort of heart that can love God, that can respond to God as we were made to, even his generous grace, to be those who acknowledge our sin and therefore those who run to him. See, the holiness that we need for a relationship with our holy God is one that can only be found in Jesus. And wonderfully, the gospel says that as our lives are bound with his, we are declared those who are free from every stain of sin. That no matter how guilty you feel before this holy God, no matter how inadequate you feel before him, no matter how small and undeserving of his mercy, as you look to Jesus and you see one who was perfect, who died in your place, You are given that holiness before God right now, this morning. It is a holiness that we have before our God and it is a holiness that we ongoingly live out in our Christian life as his spirit gets to work on our hearts, as his spirit helps us grow and put to death our sin, as his spirit reassures us that we are his children and that we can approach with joy. Let me read these words from 1 Peter chapter 2, which pick up on this moment. This is what Peter says. 
speaking of the church, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. See, if we are those this morning who turn to Jesus, this is now true of us. These incredible covenant promises are true of us. Because of Jesus, we become God's treasured possession. There is nothing in all this world that will possibly separate us from his love. Because of Jesus, we become a kingdom of priests. We have been cleansed and we have access to our God to serve him with joy and delight. And because of Jesus, we are made a holy nation. We are distinctive because his love is at work in our hearts. His life is at work in our life. Uh, We are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And Helen's going to lead us in that. But as we do, we celebrate what it is to trust in this Christ, this Savior, who makes this covenant relationship with our holy God possible.